Very good to see everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm Hugh, Hugh Raven. I know everybody on the call today, I'm delighted to say. And uh, I'm the chair of the Environmental Funders Network. Uh, I live in North Argyll from where I'm joining this call today on the Hebridean Sea. I've actually lived most of my life on and off on beside the Hebridean Sea and I've become passionate about Scotland's marine environment and some of the people that inspire me most in the work that they're doing right around Scotland's coast are the four people on this call. So I'm absolutely thrilled that we're able to record this and hear from their experiences about what's really become an exhilarating time in Scottish marine conservation. There's so much happening and yet there's so much still to do. This series of uh, of podcasts and films that we're making is part of uh, a work program of the Environmental Funders Network called Inspiring People. And we've done three episodes already. This is the fourth. We've done an episode on youth and climate, on plastics and on rewilding. And you'll find them all on the EFN's website, greenfunders.org. And I strongly recommend that you have a look at them. And the reason we've decided to focus on Scotland's marine environment for this fourth episode is that the research by the Environmental Funders Network shows that there's actually relatively little philanthropic support for environmental work in Scotland. And yet Scotland's seas are incredibly important. Scotland has around 60% of the UK's coastline and over 60% of the UK's waters. So if you're interested in marine, you've got to be interested in what's happening in Scotland. And yet, in spite of that preponderance of marine interests in Scotland, we're not actually very good at managing them. And Scotland has lost some of the most productive fisheries in the world as a consequence of poor historic management. So we'll explore that and the other initiatives that are taking place in Scottish marine conservation over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. So I'm now going to ask everyone to introduce themselves, if they would, please. And I'm going to start with Kerry. Would you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Kerry Whiteside from Fauna and Flora International. Yep. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here. It's really exciting to be involved in this conversation. Um, I am Kerry Whiteside, as you say. I work for Fauna and Flora International. So FFI is a global biodiversity conservation charity and it takes a real focus on partnership working and uh, building community capacity for conservation. So I manage our marine community support project in Scotland and through this project we help to set up and currently run what has become the Coastal Communities Network. Great, thank you very much Kerry. Excellent. Danny, how about yourself? Hi, um, I'm Danny Renton. Um, I'm the uh, founder and project coordinator of an uh, of, uh, organisation, a charity called Sea Wilding. Um, sea Wilding is based at the Craignish Peninsula in Argyll. Um, and we have a project here funded by the National Lottery, which is a uh, Scotland's and possibly the UK's first um, community-led marine habitat restoration project. And the project is a uh, its aim is to put down uh, a million native oysters in the loch um, in order to reverse the degradation of the loch that's happened as a result of scallop dredging 
um, a sea trout farm and also recreational boating activity. And we hope in the next five years or so to have put them down in, in numbers that we can, um, we can recreate a sustainable fishery for the community. And if we can do that, we can replicate this model elsewhere. And um, that's the plan. Terrific, thank you very much indeed, Danny. Alison from the Isle of Mar, Alison Lomax, Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust. Hey, thanks you and hi everyone. Um, I'm Alison Lomax and um, I am a marine biologist and a self-confessed citizen science enthusiast and the director of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust on the Isle of Mull. Um, the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust or HWDT is a marine conservation charity um, and we've been researching whales, dolphins and porpoises um, around the west coast of Scotland for over 25 years and um, this area is just so incredibly biodiverse for whales, dolphins and porpoises or cetaceans if you want to use the collective term. We have over, well we have 24 species of whales, dolphins, porpoises that have been seen on the west coast of Scotland which just to put that into perspective that's a quarter of all global cetacean species so um, really really spectacular area not only for the species that are here but also for the fact that you can see them so readily um, all around our coastline. Thank you Alison, terrific, excellent. And Phil, Philip Taylor from Open Seas. Hey, um, thanks for having me on the call. Uh, my name's Phil Taylor. Um, I've worked in conservation and love the sea for pretty much my entire life. Uh, doing all kinds of jobs from digging ditches on RSPB reserves to attending UN conferences on uh, various elements of the conservation policy landscape. Um, as you said, I'm the head of operations and policy for a very, very small organization called the Open Peace Trust based in Scotland. We're a campaigns organization trying to um, draw attention to problems of illegal and illegitimate um, damage caused to our marine environment and um, yeah I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Great thank you very much indeed Phil. Well I need to declare an interest at that at this point because I'm the founder and chair of Open Seas and naturally a great fan of what it does and it's one of the reasons that I've become so enthusiastic about Scottish marine issues because I've discovered over the course of the last few years that the involvement of local organizations, community groups can be at last a really powerful voice in the debate about management of our seas. And one of the things that I find so inspiring about these organizations is that they're a combination. They combine community voice with citizen science and getting people involved in practical projects in their own home waters. And we've heard a little bit about that already, but we'll hear more about it as the conversation goes on. I, I'm also involved in philanthropy, uh, which is why I'm involved in the Environmental Funders Network. And as a philanthropist, I should say right at the outset that one of the best returns you can get on philanthropic investment is being involved in Scottish marine conservation, particularly, particularly if you can do that from the grassroots up. And each of these organizations is, uh, help, is helping to get local communities to articulate their interest and insist that these matters are no longer just for the regulators and the commercial users. They're also the legitimate in interest of everybody who has a stake in the sea. And of course, that involves the communities that live in Scotland's coastal 
areas. And no one's done more in that respect in terms of developing community voice than Kerry at FFI. And Kerry, it'd be really helpful to hear from you, if you would please, a little bit about what you've done to develop the community voice and where that is going, what you think is going to happen in the future and how you're networking different community bodies. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so FFI, we've been working to support coastal communities who are interested in conservation in Scotland for about six years. We designed a project with Coast, who's the community of Arran Seabed Trust. And there are a bunch of local people from the Isle of Arran who have achieved a great deal in protecting their local waters and wanted to essentially share their experience with others and create a movement of coastal communities who could really push for change and push for stronger environmental protection of our seas. So back in 2014, when we started the project, there was no community infrastructure to really bring all the individuals and community groups who were clearly out there together. And so we worked with a whole host of individuals and groups to actually build the infrastructure of what has now become the Coastal Communities Network. So today, myself and my colleague, Rebecca Plant, facilitate CCN, the Coastal Communities Network, and it brings together 17 different community groups from across the coast who are speaking up together on some of the big threats um, that they're seeing in the marine environment. So that's you know, mobile fishing impact on the seabed, environmental impacts of salmon farming. But also these groups are working together to support one another in developing their skills and capacity as community groups. So CCN functions now as a really dynamic and developing space. It's quite young. Um, it still has lots ahead of it, but it's FFI's job to really build the long-term mechanisms which will hopefully underpin CCN and more important really all of its constituent parts into the future. So I think um, there's a few sort of lessons that we've learned along the way. Um, I guess I'd start by saying that um, working for FFI, we obviously didn't come to this with a completely blank slate. Um, FFI has helped its partners to build and facilitate networks like CCN in other countries. So there was some shared learning that we could kind of tap into and bring to this space in Scotland, like ensuring that there's a good balance of bespoke one-to-one -one support to communities, but also support you know, to a whole sort of uh, network level as well, and, and working um, with an exit strategy from the beginning. Um, so, but we've obviously learned things along the way as well, um, unique to Scotland. There's so much that I could um, sort of talk about here. Um, one, of the, one of the things I thought would be most relevant to this conversation was um, to highlight the impact of um, the community support fund that we've built with the network. So this is a small grants fund, which we are able to administer because we secured grant funding from the John Ellerman Foundation to do so. And we launched this fund about a year and a half ago. Um, we operate it with a relatively small annual cap of about £12,000 and we encourage all the different community groups within CCN to apply to it for typically funds of around £1,000 um, but you know we've funded things for 200 quid. we've funded things for a little bit more as long as it's a project which is focused on uh, local conservation and it's been really amazing um, so far we've funded about a dozen projects under the community support fund um, and we're funding things like ecological surveys and hydrodynamic modeling work to delivering events in Holyrood, to supporting communities to deliver workshops 
to develop up voluntary codes of conduct in marine protected areas. So a real diversity of projects. Um, I think that the lesson that we're learning um, with the Coastal Communities Network and with this fund is actually the impact that can be reached with such a small amount of funding. Um, you know, for, for loads of reasons, really, often it can bring additional funding in, but also, um, you know, these communities are developing up new skills, skills in the process of um, accessing this fund. Um, most of the community groups that we work with are volunteers. Um, there's a real diversity of skill set amongst the groups. Um, some people have no experience at all in accessing funds. So often it's actually the process of accessing the funds that's just as important as the delivery of the activities that the funds are sort of underpinning. So we're helping communities to you know, write project proposals, design monitoring, design budgets, um, monitor their impact. And um, that's a really, really integral skill set to develop. And I think it's quite nice um, to be able to sort of play the FFI big sister role in supporting groups to, to develop those skills. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, that's been a really kind of key uh, learn, learning for, for us. I think there's huge potential though, I will say, um, in sort of um, that approach of designing a community-led conservation network that could be applicable beyond the marine environment. Kerry, thank you very much indeed. That's so interesting about relatively small amounts of philanthropy being able to leverage an increasing capacity, a, a, an upskilling, if I can use that word, of uh, local community organisations. You mentioned 17 members of the Coastal Communities Network. How many of those existed when you first started? So, it's, I suppose there's probably been about five or six, there's probably more actually, uh, brand new groups that have popped up. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's hard to be honest to track it because there were maybe like a version of the group or the ingredients of a group. And I think FFI has helped to, you know, ignite that and bring it into fruition. Um, in Argyle actually in particular, it's been a real success story in um, sort of the, the kind of support that FFI is able to leverage igniting the formation of a whole set of new groups. Danny is obviously able to speak about that directly because he's part Absolutely. of one of them. And I think that that's, that's been like such an inspirational um, process to be part of, um, helping to set up COOLIS, um, Community Association of Locks and Signs, and then them helping to set up CROMAC, Craig Nish Restoration of Marine and Coastal Habitat, and then working with other groups like Friends of the Sound of Jura, um, to, to really bring those groups together. So um, I don't know if I could directly claim the amount of groups that have you know, directly set up, but certainly we've seen a big um, expansion of new groups. Um, I think it's just having that morale of knowing that there's a network that they can connect into of like-minded individuals. And dare I said, even sort of, it's like a legitimizing thing where you're, you're you're telling these community groups that they're allowed to occupy that space, they're allowed to have that pro-conservation voice and they will be heard. I think that's exactly right, giving confidence to people to get involved and know that they're part of a network that is legitimised, I think is incredibly important. For, to me, actually, 
that's the most exhilarating thing that's happened in Scottish marine conservation over the course of the last few years. And, and FFI has been absolutely central to that. And as a founder member of one of the groups that you mentioned, I would just completely endorse what you've said. Your presence there giving us confidence kept us going when we faltered and wondered whether ever, ever we were going to be able to become a legitimate and meaningful voice for marine conservation in this community. I live in the extreme north of Argyll, uh, opposite the Isle of Mile, so on the Sand of Mile. Um, Danny, we heard already a little bit about Cromach, the local group that you're involved with down in Mid-Argyll. You're based on uh, Loch Craignish, um, the Ardfern Peninsula. Tell us a bit about what sea wilding does and what the community marine conservation focus is down in your part of the world. Uh, well, yes, Hugh. Um, Cromac is our local voluntary association, which Kerry has alluded to, and um, uh, it's called Craignish Restoration of Marine and Coastal Habitats. And um, our local group, uh, two years ago, um, applied for funding for 800 quid, not very much, uh, to put down a pilot project to see if we could restore native oysters to Loch Craignish. And just a bit of background about native oysters is that they are known as ecosystem engineers and 95% of them have disappeared around the UK. Um, the Firth of Forth used to have a harvest of 60 million oysters a year. Now they're effectively commercially extinct and, and protected. And science recognises that if you can restore them, you can also restore the biodiversity of the, of the water column which they're in, the water body which they're in. And at Loch Craignish, we have these colossal shells of native oysters lying around the shoreline. And we know that in Victorian times, there was a serious native oyster fishery here of these massive oysters. And they've all but disappeared. And that's just one indicator of the, of the decline in the health of our sea loch here. Um, it's also been scallop dredged. There's also a sea trout farm. There's also a very large marina and there's associated pollution from that. Um, so Cromac decided that they wanted to look at a way of actively restoring the marine health of our local um, marine ecosystem. And so how about applying for 800 quid to put down a thousand native oysters, see how they get on. And if that worked well, as proof of concept, we would then go for a national lottery grant. Um, and the pilot project worked well, we went for a national lottery grant, we won it. And as a result of that, the community is now planning to put down a million native oysters over the next five years. And the idea there is not only could we restore the native oyster beds, um, restore the, uh, the health of the loch by uh, increasing biodiversity, native oysters also uh, filtrate and clean the water, but we can also do other things as well. We can also look at seagrass, which sequesters 35 times more carbon than the equivalent volume of Amazon rainforest. And uh, there are various patches of seagrass around the loch. And by doing these things, we can um, actually restore the health of the loch, but we can also empower the community and show that communities can actually do something to reverse the decline of, of, of the marine ecosystem. Um, so that's what we're doing. And uh, we're now a year into the project, so it's fairly early. It's going very well. We had uh, 20 volunteers uh, last week broadcasting 60,000 native oysters down into pre-surveyed sites around the loch. Um, and it's very exciting because, um, as everyone says, as you said yourself, Hugh, is that Scotland's fisheries have not been well managed in the past. And in our own lifetime, we see the... Um, 
the collapse of fishery stocks, most of them are now commercially extinct, were fishing at the bottom of the food chain. The local fishery around here is for prawns and lobsters and crabs. All the white fish have gone. And, the, um, and communities like ours remember what it used to be and are frustrated at the fact that they don't seem to have a policy voice, that government won't listen to them. Government is in, um, in hock with the vested interests, the fishing interests who don't want things to change. And so projects like these are very empowering because it shows that you can actually make a difference. And potentially by doing this and by getting our voice heard and being noticed, we can get a marine protected area for our loch. And we can show that under proper community stewardship, we can restore biodiversity and potentially bring back a sustainable community fishery at not a great cost. Um, and that's where philanthropic capital is so important because just with 800 quid, we proved something and then we managed to buy capital from that 800 quid. And we're now looking for more capital to roll out these projects elsewhere. Um, and we've got various other interested parties up the West Coast of Scotland who want to do something similar. So it's, um, this is what we're up to. And we think that communities are potentially are immensely powerful. And uh, we owe a lot to the Coastal Communities Network and Kerry and Rebecca for that. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, well, we're hoping to replicate up here in North Argyll what you've achieved and are achieving down in Mid Argyll. Phil, we heard reference there to the Firth of Forth and the fact that it had formerly a very productive uh, oyster fishery. Uh, I think we're looking at the Firth of Forth over your shoulder behind you. And Dan referred there to marine protected areas. Tell us a bit, if you would, please, about Scotland's marine protected area network and whether it's meaningful as a conservation, a marine conservation policy. Yep. Um, in fact, this is the Aberdeenshire coast and uh, that's relevant because um, this uh, body of water behind me is actually a proposed marine protected area. It's been sat on the slate for designation for about five years. Um, Scotland, uh, as with most countries, has an international obligation to designate marine protected areas. Um, that's been a policy position from the Scottish Government for some time. Um, but really, the way that those have been implemented has been um, not to fulfil their full potential. Um, about 30 marine protected areas were designated in Scotland in 2014. Um, however, uh, only around uh, half of those that are found in inshore waters have any form of protection whatsoever. And uh, by its own admission, the Scottish Government note that the network is itself not yet complete. Like I said, this area behind me, an area known as the Southern Trench, really important for uh, minke whales and other um, cetacean species, Alison might want to talk some more about that, um, is yet to be designated. Uh, not only has the network um, basically been neglected in, 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 in achieving full protection, um, it's also been subject to um, extensive illegal uh, fishing and illegal damage. Um, sadly, uh, just this week, we've reported on um, illegal damage being found within Loch Alch, um, just adjacent to the Sky Bridge, um, an area that's actually protected under two forms of legislation and protected, uh, designated under two forms of legislation, European and national, and protected uh, both as a license condition, a condition on the license that allows you to go fishing and uh, as part of the marine protected area designation itself. 
someone's used remarkably the COVID um, uh, relief funds that were handed out to the fishing industry um, to go and illegally dredge a marine protected area. It's, it's remarkable. Um, the, 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 the important thing to note here, I think, is that the marine protected area network still provides that opportunity that I mentioned at the top. The reason it's, it's yet to fulfill it is in part the in hoc issue that Dan mentioned. Uh, the, there seems to be a, a, a certain resistance to do anything that would um, damage certain fishing industries, uh, interests. Um, that, the drivers behind that are complex, um, associated with some of the metapolitics that are going around at the moment in Scotland and around the UK more, more broadly, take back control of our seas, these kind of rhetoric uh, issues that take over. Um, but um, my view is that the opportunity remains. You know, we still have 31 marine protected areas. We still have a, a requirement to recover the health of our sea. These areas are some of the best parts um, of our, our marine environment. And they have legal, um, there are legal duties that would require that they be protected. I think that the, the work that um, Danny and the groups that um, Kerry are supporting are doing uh, has the real potential to move into the space that these marine protected areas have created and in, instead of them then being seen as a um, an industry versus you know just some amorphous conservation outcomes some amorphous environmental outcome uh, those things can be meshed in the way that Danny was talking about in, in the way that actually recovery of the health of our sea is in clearly in the best interests of um, Scotland in the long term. Thank you very much. Great. Good. Well, Alison, you've been very patient. Tell us a bit, please, if you would, firstly, where you are, and secondly, about the work of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, and perhaps particularly with reference to the amazing citizen science work that you do. Of course. So I'm based um, on the Isle of Mull. Um, I live on the north coast of the Isle of Mull uh, in Derveg, and our charity is based just uh, along the road in Tobermory. And um, I suppose in terms of what we do, our key role is around um, researching, um, providing long-term monitoring and research of um, the cetacean species that we find here on the west coast of Scotland. And we, we really champion citizen science. So all of the projects that we run, all of our long-term monitoring and research is absolutely driven by public participation. We couldn't do any of it without volunteers or members of the community actually getting involved in those projects. And it's also a really uh, cost-effective way of carrying out sustainable long-term monitoring. I feel like I should just go back a tiny step though and just explain why that long-term monitoring is so important because it can sound a little bit dull, the words long-term monitoring, uh, but it's actually really exciting and really vital. So um, in terms of why it's important, uh, cetaceans across the globe are facing huge pressure and for some species the threat of extinction is a real one and even in Scottish waters our own resident population of killer whales are facing extinction within our lifetime. So this isn't um, a healthy, happy population of whales and dolphins necessarily across the world, they're facing big threats. And some of those things are increases in pollution. So pollution for whales and dolphins can be anything from acoustic, so underwater noise pollution, um, from chemical pollution, and also physical pollution, so potentially being caught in nets or plastic. So there's a whole range of things that um, impact our whales and dolphins um, globally, as well as here in Scotland. And it's really, really important, therefore, that we protect 
critical habitat. And just to describe what critical habitat is, it's ultimately places that are important for whales and dolphins to carry out key functions that enable them to survive. So that would be feeding, uh, breeding, carving and raising their young. And in Scotland, we have some amazing places that these animals do that. And Phil is now sitting in front of one of them. <laughs> so actually, it's really, really important that we are protecting and really vitally monitoring those places because whales and dolphins, they move around a lot and we need to know how they're using those sites over a long period of time in order to understand why they're important and therefore how we protect them. So we do that all through citizen science and the citizen science projects we run allow us to, as I say, carry out that long-term monitoring and generate knowledge and evidence in order to inform and advise on marine uh, protection policies and also more generally just responsible use of our marine environment um, with a particular kind of reference to whales and dolphins. So um, for us, the really great thing about citizen science is that anyone can get involved. We've got two projects that we run. Um, the first is Whale Track, which is a community sighting network. We have an app that means it's quick and easy, hopefully, <laughs> for anyone to report a sighting, particularly on the west coast of Scotland. And we have about 2,000 people who are reporting sightings to us through that, that, that network. Um, that's individuals, tour operators, as well as fishermen. So a whole range of stakeholders are providing that information. Um, we basically are using that information for a lot of different things, but one of the most exciting is to enable us to track individual whales. So we know that minke whales, for example, return to the Hebrides year after year to feed. They migrate into our waters, they feed, and then they leave. However, what we're able to see through whale track, through photos being sent to us, is that the same individual whales are coming back year after year. Um, our longest sightings history is for a whale that's come back to the area for 20 years. Um, and, and, and actually for 15 years in a row, we've actually seen that animal. <laughs> it's an impressively steadfast routine, actually. Uh, yes, this animal comes almost every year at the same time, and we see it in the same place. And that's really important to know for protecting those sites. We also have a project called, uh, well, onboard our research vessel, which is called Silurian. Um, we run dedicated uh, research expeditions that rely on volunteers joining us on board to help us carry out uh, quite um, dedicated and uh, uh, kind of high level surveys on board that vessel. So we can collect a lot of different types of information on board and that information is collated. We've been doing it for over for 18 years now. This would be the 18th year and that information uh, is kind of all collated together and then puts a really good use. Uh, we're able to use it because it's so um, long-term, it's the same protocol year after year after year, we're able to um, identify important places where these animals are using kind of over time. We're able to use that then to underpin the selection of areas for marine protection. We're also able to have a look at um, whether there are any emerging threats. So we know that underwater noise is increasing on the west coast of Scotland because of our surveys, and that could have a real impact, as well as a threat of entanglement in rope, uh, rope lines. So we're looking at how um, that is impacting the animals as well. And then finally, because of the long-term nature of the data, we're able to also see how these populations are changing over time. So especially in a time like this where we have incredible levels of biodiversity loss and climate change, being able to see whether these populations are increasing, decreasing or changing over time is it's really vital for us to understand the impacts of those bigger, more general um, 
problems that we're facing. So I guess in terms of, you know, just the, the real value of citizen science is none of that information would exist or be possible to collect year after year to the, to the extent that we do if we didn't have um, people getting involved and, and citizens willing to give up their time and sometimes money to, to participate in those projects. And one of the biggest challenges to us this year has been the COVID pandemic. So we found that the marine mammal monitoring work across the globe, to be honest, has been incredibly disrupted by the pandemic. At sea monitoring just could not take place during lockdown. Um, personally, we've seen an 80% decrease in the number of sightings reported to us through whale track, and we had to cancel all of our um, public surveys this year just because of sort of health um, and restrictions that were, were, were placed on kind of physical distancing and things. So it's had a real impact on our research, probably the biggest data gap we'll face since we started working 25 years ago, which has real implications for long-term usefulness of the data. So we're doing everything we can to kind of keep that monitoring going and getting people involved. And one of the really positive things I guess to end on is that we did see in lockdown even though we had a reduction in the number of sightings because people were not able to travel and necessarily get to some of the places they would normally watch from, we had more people from our local community uh, download the app and get involved and basically um, really sort of start, like really help us through that, that difficult time to continue on monitoring so that we could still collect data. And really it was the community and the people who were out at sea potentially carrying out some essential work that were the only way that we could, could, could continue our monitoring during that time. So um, that was something that was, although a really challenging time, really, really positive uh, that we were able to continue to do some, some work. Brilliant, thank you so much, Alison. Fascinating, excellent work that you do there. And you've revealed so much, not just about the numbers of these animals and their longevity and their fidelity to certain places, but also about the threats and, and the noise work you've done, I know has been absolutely pioneering. Marine noise has become a big issue in this part of North Argyll and probably much more uh, broadly as well. And uh, your work in, in monitoring and measuring that is really, really remarkable. I'm going to ask everybody now to tell us what they would do if they had a little bit more money, because the Environmental Funders Network is partly about spending philanthropic money better but it's also partly about trying to raise more money for environmental philanthropy. And as I mentioned earlier, here in Scotland, there is, simply isn't enough money going into environmental causes from philanthropic sources. So I want to ask you all, how would you spend a marginal pound, 20 pounds, 10,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds? How would you use your next tranche of philanthropic cash? Alison, could we start with you, please? So we definitely couldn't do what we do without without funding. Um, it's really critical um, to maintain our work. Um, and as I sort of indicated earlier on, we um, we are facing a lot of challenges in terms of continuing that monitoring work and actually continuing the capacity to deliver that in these uncertain times. So um, I guess first and foremost, uh, our priority is to continue that long-term monitoring work and maintaining our current capacity and the, the current work we do, um, which is no easy thing always. So, um, but if we were able to increase our capacity and there was additional funds available, I think given the, the real impact that our whale track project had during lockdown and during this year, the, the top 
level for us of priority would be to invest in that network further, to invest in uh, supporting our reporters um, to be able to provide more information and to be able to um, you know, feedback that information and publish it. We would also really like to invest in technology to make that process a whole lot easier um, in some respects for different types of data. So really investing in the community that's supporting us to do this monitoring work and trying to feed that information back through yeah, our well trap project would be our priority. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Excellent. That's a good pitch, I must say. I like it. Good. Phil, over to you. What would Open Seas do with more money? I'd buy a boat. I'd buy a boat. Um, one of the, you know, we're working a lot on the seabed habitat, the benthic habitat, which is kind of the foundation of the, the sea above it. Alison's working on things that live in the sea and they're really difficult to monitor, but at least those things hit the surface occasionally. <laughs> the seabed itself, out of sight, out of mind, a lot of what we need to know about the seabed, we don't. Uh, we've only learned some of these things by accident. For example, Loch Caron, an area that was uh, damaged by um, legal, believe it or not, legal, but highly destructive fishing, uh, scallop dredging activity, was later found to be the largest flame shell bed in the world. We had no idea, we had no idea. Um, flame shell records are, are rolling in uh, now relatively regularly because commercial scallop divers have understood what they look like a little bit better. Um, we need to get in and around the seas to uh, investigate some of these reports of illegality, also to better understand the, the damage that's happening that's perfectly legal, um, but in our view, you know, very destructive and shouldn't be happening. And we need to understand um, some of the implications of, uh, some of the opportunities rather, um, to, to recover our sea by finding, you know, Alison talked about those essential habitats, the cetaceans, well, you know, and Danny talked about the loss of uh, whitefish, cod, whiting, herring, all on the west coast are zero, zero tax species. No fishery is allowed to target those species whatsoever because the, the stocks are so declined. Um, we, we don't really know where those species are um, spawning in the case of herring uh, and, 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 and using as nursery grounds in the, in the case of um, uh, cod and whiting. And, and to know that would uh, allow us to, to take conservation action that would help recover those areas. Great, thank you very much. So a boat is the open seas priority. Excellent, thank you. Kerry, how would you use some extra philanthropic support? Uh, so for me, I think I'm obviously quite biased, but I think we've cracked a nut with the Coastal Communities Network. And so um, I would, with more money, just keep building the mechanisms within the Coastal Communities Network. Um, enable more groups to join the network. There are more groups out there, we know it. We're in discussions with a bunch of them. So um, it's just about getting the capacity behind the network um, that we can build on. And, and as, as we sort of talked about at the beginning of the call, thinking about how this model could be applicable in other sectors and in other places, I think there's great potential within that that's quite exciting. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, as Phil mentioned before, there's still a great deal that we have to do with regards to marine protected areas. And there's so much opportunity for co-management, which is collaborative management of these marine protected areas, which sees communities you know, at the center of leading on the marine protected areas and implementing them and managing them and patrolling them. And we've got great examples of co-managed marine protected areas from around the world. So I think you know, there's an exciting time ahead in Scotland for managed MPS as well. Excellent, thank you very much indeed, good. Thank you. Daniel, how would you use some extra funding? 
I've been doing more of the same, really. And, and it's about your marine habitat restoration um, in the hands of the community. So it's uh, seagrass meadows, it's native oysters. It's also looking at regenerative aquaculture, growing seaweed alongside oysters and things like that. Um, because I, I think that you know, if we can roll this out, we can empower communities to take ownership of the seas again and to have a really strong, powerful voice in, in, in the future of fisheries and the future of the marine ecosystem. And, and what we're doing is, is pretty low cost. It's not, you know, there are no big salaries involved here. It's, um, it's it, we can do a lot with a little money. And furthermore, if everything goes right, we can then create jobs and economic opportunity, which is sustainable. And so it's, it's a future vision of, of the West Coast fisheries and West Coast communities, which is you know, very promising if we get it right, but it needs finance. Excellent, thank you very much. Well, let me throw out one additional question, if I may, and see who uh, wants to take a, a shot at this one. Uh, policy change. We've heard about policy and the Marine Protected Area Network. Um, we've heard that that hasn't been terribly successful because the uh, implementation measures have not been adequate. Uh, what would be our priorities, in a sentence or two, please, for policy change? And does philanthropy have a role in assisting that? Alison, any thoughts on that one, please? So, I mean, we've we mentioned very briefly a couple of times the, the, the marine protected areas that are proposed at the moment and, and as yet undesignated. And um, one of our key um, asks and um, one of the things we're really eager to see um, is that those marine protected areas for minke whales, basking sharks and rizzo's dolphins as well as other mobile species are designated um, and monitored appropriately and that human activities are managed to protect those places and the species that rely on them. Um, they have been waiting a while and um, should they be designated soon, which we really hope they will be, um, that for us would be the culmination of like hundreds of thousands of kilometers of work of survey effort by citizen scientists and would be so meaningful and inspirational to help like protect those animals in Scottish waters so for for us that's really what we'd like to see happen if not now next year. <laughs> Thank you so much excellent great thanks Phil how about you? The problem we face at the moment is that environment is sat in a very thin pillar on its own away from the industries uh, that take place in our seas in the way that the government manages them. The government manages fishing, it manages agriculture, it manages other industries uh, in, in, in their own silos, well away from the environment. The environment is integral to all those things. The way that um, obligations are set by the government uh, require management of the environment throughout those things, that does not currently happen, that needs to change. If that changed, we'd be a million miles further on than we are now. Thank you very much, great, thanks. Daniel, what are you looking at down there with your oysters in Loch Craignish? What's the policy change you need to see? Well, I'm going to pull away from oysters and to look at, look at it more generically. It's basically, you know, 40, 50 years ago, there were really rich fisheries here and they've gone. And it's because of scallop dredging. It's because of the inshore limit that prevented scallop dredging from coming close inshore. That was lifted in 1984. So the dredgers and the bottom trawlers come right up to the rocks and they can just plow in a few meters of water and all, you know, so all the fragile ecosystems have gone, the fish spawning grounds and the fish nurseries, and all that has gone due to maladroit fishing policy. So we need to reverse all that and accept it's gone, accept that the, you know, the, the whole environment has changed, reverse it and go and have a vision of what it could be and aim for that. Thank you. That is indeed a very compelling vision. Kerry, 
policy change, what are your priorities? I would, I would add just to everything that's been said, I, I completely agree we need reformed policy with regards to fishing, we need integrated policy for environmental uh, management, but also I would add, you know, in Scotland we are in a pretty exciting and unique situation with community empowerment legislation. We've got a Community Empowerment Act, we've got the Islands Act, you know, we've got the Land Reform Act before that. So we are talking the talk, but I think we need to be able to actually make the most of all of that legislation and actually um, enable the next steps to be taken to actually see communities at the forefront. Because I think, you know, relative to other places, we've got some pretty good ingredients in terms of policy, um, but yeah, there's still still quite a lot of work to do on the ground. Excellent, thank you so much. Well, thank you to everybody. It's been an inspiring conversation. The Environmental Funders Network is the organization that in addition to uh, spending philanthropic money better is encouraging new donors. And each one of these organizations spends philanthropic money exceptionally well they're very very good value for money and i would encourage anybody seeing this to consider supporting any of these organizations philanthropically and also to give your support to the environmental funders network which for the first time now has a staff member in scotland and is able to highlight just what exceptionally good value for money philanthropists get when they invest in this wonderful country so thank you very much indeed for everybody's contribution. Thank you for listening and watching. And please do go to the greenfunders.org website and have a look at the other podcasts and short conversational films that we've made about how better you can spend your money and how you can feel great being an environmental philanthropist. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to see you all.